Hello and welcome to SimTalk, a member of the Broken Jars podcast network. My name is Benjamin Schumann and today we're having a guest that takes a different spin on simulation. He's the uh, chief technology officer at a company that has a great name and a perfect landing page, in my opinion, and an even more interesting vision. The company is called Sandtable. And welcome to SimTalk, uh, Thomas French. Hello, Thomas. Hi, thanks. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here. Great. Thank you for having us. Uh, thank you for being a guest. Um, Thomas, we spoke a while ago over the phone just generally, um, and we had such an interesting conversation that I thought we definitely need to have that conversation again <laughs> as a podcast so people can actually share in, because your company is, is very special, I think, and does some things quite differently. And it will be interesting to share that with the audience. But before we go into more detail on, on Sandtable, I would like to learn a little bit more about you. So what's your background? How did you actually uh, come across simulation? What did you do before that? Okay, yeah, sure. So, um, so I guess I, 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 my undergraduate degree, I did my undergraduate degree up in, at Edinburgh and um, I studied computer science and artificial intelligence. Um, and I was particularly kind of interested in, in sort of more in optimization, heuristic optimization. Um, and I got the opportunity, I finished my undergrad and I went to work for uh, General Electric um, and I was sort of starting out as a graduate software developer um, and friends of mine were back at university and had gone straight into PhDs um, and they were working in a very interesting area of fire safety engineering. So civil engineers um, who'd got onto this you know, amazing project um, and were looking at fire. And it, and it became apparent that there was a need. Uh, one of the partners in the project was in the AI department in Edinburgh, so a, a department that I knew. Um, and a position became available for, for someone to come in and join on the kind of AI side. Um, and through that, so I started there, and I, I knew that optimization was, was sort of of interest of mine. Um, and the project had this vision of the next generation of fire response. So putting sensors, understanding buildings, you know, kind of, equipping firemen and, and the responders with better tooling um, and understanding what's going on in the building. And as I started to kind of look at, look into that, into the area and across sort of, um, you know, interdisciplinary really, um, I became interested in the problem of evacuation. Um, and, and through that and looking at how do we get people out of buildings um, and how do we model that? And that sort of led me down the path of, of simulation um, and people simulating buildings and, and that cross that array of very simple kind of physical models all the way up to agent-based models of, of understanding how people move around buildings. So within that, I carved out, sort of found a little niche and, and that was sort of modeling buildings as networks, mm -hmm. um, stochastic, time varying, you know, quite complex networks and thinking about how, how do we model simple, you know, simple behaviors and movement um, and then sort of formulate, formalizing that as an optimization problem and then looking at how we, how we kind of how we can approach that. So was that already um, a simulation based optimization stuff or was it more mathematical approach? Well, it was mathematical, um, but it was I sort of proved that it was, you know, a hard problem to solve um, and, and was then able to kind of apply different techniques, um, sort of come up with heuristic approaches. Um, and it was built on the work um, so you could, I mean, he, he, the work was very much interdisciplinary. My external examiner is a professor of operations research. Um, so I was really kind of at the cross section between kind of AI and OR and, and engineering, I think. So, um, yeah, but I became very interested in how you kind of model, model behavior. Um, you know, and they were on the one hand, there were people saying, well, behavior is very simple to model. 
you know, you've got these fire models and you just do that and people are constrained and they're pedestrian, you know, sort of pedestrian type models and they just move through buildings. Then on the other hand, there's plenty of evidence to suggest, you know, otherwise. So it's, it's obviously a complex, uh, I would say a complex thing to do. Um, so, sorry. Uh, this sounds like uh, this, this disagreement that you just mentioned sounds a little bit like in the economist space where some economists say, oh, everything is in equilibrium and, and people are, you know, perfect agents and everything is really simple. And then there are people saying, yeah, not in reality. Is that a similar disagreement? Yes. There? I mean, I guess it is. I mean, I think, you know, one, one of the things, you know, some people say that what, what computer science teaches you is abstraction. Um, and I think, you know, I, I always come back to that, that really what we're talking about is we should be focusing more on purpose and understanding around, you know, what level of abstraction are you thinking about? Because at some level of abstraction, people are simple, but you delve mm -hmm. under and they're more complex. So for me, I mean, I think it's that trade-off against computational ability. So, you know, tractability and computation is really, really what's interesting is on the cusp of what is tractable and what isn't, and that sort of way I places itself. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it, it does come back to, you know, what is the purpose? What do you need to do? Um, yeah, so I mean, that's sort of how I try to formulate it. So yes, on the one hand, you could say, it could be good enough um, to say people, people are simple and we can model that. And, Maybe in the case of a building, there is evidence that people, um, people when they're evacuating on a real emergency, it is similar to when they're doing as a fire alarm. So there are, there are, there is simplicity. There are, you know, people do, there are simple heuristics. People come in at, go out of a building the way they came in because it's the one they trust. So there are these sort of simple patterns. Mm -hmm. um, but then in general, of course, you know, human behavior is a, a, a very broad spectrum. Um, so, so you did that, that PhD with optimization. Yes. Um, but it still sounds like you, you hadn't really delved into simulation yet, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I, the way I saw it, it was I was interested in simulation optimization. So, mm -hmm. you know, the systems um, were, were simulation, you were simulating from them. And then how do we kind of search across those, those complex combinatorial parameter spaces, trying to find and understand the dynamics of simulations, but also find the, you know, the best the best route, for example, through it. So formalizing an optimization problem over a simulation space. Oh, so um, as part of your PhD, you did actually build like simulation models of buildings and yes, evacuation. Exactly. Represented abstractly as a graph. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's, that kind of got me very much intrigued. And I think I had that AI interested in, in you know, I was interested in AI more in a sense in computer science because of that human element and modeling um, as well and understanding. Um, cool. So I did that. Um, and then, to be honest, sort of luckily you could have ended up at Sandtable. Um, it was sort of through, you know, looking for jobs. Um, I was particularly, I wanted to move to London, looking for people that were doing interesting things and they kind of happened upon um, Sandtable. So when was that? That was in uh, 2012, January 2012. Right. Um, so I'd finished up at the end of 2011 and then came and joined them in 2012. Mm -hmm. um, and I, at the time, joined, joined Sandtable, they were doing agent-based modeling, starting to, starting to do that, getting some commercial projects. Um, but it became, it became clear that there were some technical issues that we needed to solve. And, and, and one of those, you know, one of the core ones that I focused on until now is how do we do large-scale simulation? Mm -hmm. um, but when I say large-scale simulation, people tend to think I mean massive simulations kind of parallelized or distributed. Um, and that wasn't the problem we had and, and it's still not really the problem we have because I think that 
the, the journey we've been on is how do we do many, so the many simulations. How do we do many simulations in parallel? Um, and as more and more data is introduced, um, in a sense, the data constrains the models more. So they, they're a bit simpler. Um, and we, you know, the problem we have is more parameter calibration, parameter estimation, yeah. um, and that sort of thing. And so, what did you do when you start joining uh, Sandtable? What was your first? Yeah, so it, we essentially to use cloud. So the, mm -hmm. the, the you know cloud seemed the obvious thing to do. I mean, we were a tiny, we were a few people in an office, shared office space in central London, um, and we said, how are we going to do? You know, there were clearly some big technical issues. How are we? Really, we were driven by the, how do we do this commercially? How do we do it um, you know, in a fast way? How do we do it efficiently, effectively? Um, but I, it was to use cloud. So I started building some cloud infrastructure, um, getting into cloud um, and thinking about how do we do this stuff large scale? Um, and that's where we, we, we wrote a couple of grants. Um, so we won a couple of Innovate UK grants mm -hmm. to help us build, build that out. Um, and they were, they were quite critical because they gave us this sort of organized you know, nine month project. Yeah. Um, and it really made us kind of write down our ideas and, and try stuff out and have a sort of goals towards. Uh, meanwhile, the project work was going on on the side. So let's step back a little bit and actually start talking about Sandtable now. So what kind of company was it when you joined and, and maybe still today or how has it changed over the years? Um, yeah, so I mean, we call ourselves uh, a data science company. Um, and I think that, you know, that is also potentially interesting um, because people don't see OBM or Asian-based modeling as a sort of data science endeavor. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I joined, so I joined and it was, it was very much, you know, building these simulations, um, helping, you know, consulting for larger enterprises, trying to help them understand problems around behavior. So it's about behavior change and about understanding behavior. So it's, we're a small company to, you know, on the project side, it's consulting. Um, and it's really driven by the idea that we can try to understand behavior yeah. um, to, to help people make better decisions. And that spans into marketing, as I understand, but any, any other areas? Yeah, so we, we've done you know, uh, a fair number of projects in public policy. Um, so long-standing relationships with Department of Health, done projects with Department of Education. Um, we work collaborated with the universities. But yeah, policy being a big area. Um, that, are you guys uh, involved in the now sort of famous, infamous uh, NUT unit in the British government? We, we had some contact with them, yes. Okay. Um, and we've done our, actually our, um, yeah, no, we haven't, I don't think we, we haven't done any formal projects with them, but we yeah. have in contact, yeah. But the idea behind the NUT unit, just for the listeners, what, is to sort of make public policies that get people to make the right best decisions for them, but not by telling them, but by giving them small nudges that they don't even notice. Um, yes. Can you maybe, do you know a good example of that? Um, I'm not sure that I do. Um, I mean, okay, so there is one. So it was, it's things, it's, they, they have this concept of a decision architecture, you know, so pe people are going to make decisions and you can kind of help them make better decisions. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so Richard Taylor and the nudge. Um, I, I believe one of them was around sort of organ donation. So it's the mm -hmm. classic thing of opting in, opting out. So, you know, if people have to opt out, then they're less likely to, to do it. And, and overall society benefits. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So I think there was some, some successes there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So the other, you know, other areas, um, I mean, I, I, you know, marketing, yes, marketing and advertising. So understanding the drivers and factors that are leading people to, to, to make purchases. 
um, in retail, uh, looking at what purchases people are making within shops, um, also decisions they're making out, you know, store choice as well. Um, mm -hmm. So it really, for us, it's about understanding decisions um, and, and why people are making those decisions. Um, and so, as, and as, yeah. as, as an outsider, because uh, I, I typically just model industrial processes, which is much more simple, <laughs> I would argue, because uh, the machine always behaves the same. The, the space of a decision, do I drink a cup of tea now or a cup of coffee, there could be millions of things impacting me. So how do you even start there? What's the basic approach to model a human decision? Yeah, so I mean, of course, there there is, um, you know, when and, and when you think about, yeah, what am I going to do next? The, the, you know, there can be a problem. But actually, the macro, you know, so this comes back to that tension as well. I mean, at the macro level, you know, if you look at something like shopping behavior, now, you know, you again, it's a level of abstraction. So, yes, if I go into a shop, I could buy anything. But in practice, people don't. You know, there's there's a lot of patterns. Habit is where you start. Mm -hmm. you know, and the question is how much behavior is habitual. So you know, is, that, is that the data science part of your company that you look into past data to tease out the habit, habits? Yes. So I mean, I, I would say our, our modeling approach is, you know, I, I don't use, don't like to say data driven because that, that suggests that it's, you know, everything falls from the data, but it doesn't. It's very data informed and data centric. So there's, you know, the, the sort of exploratory data analysis is a big part of our process. Mm -hmm. um, and also somewhere where we can deliver a lot of value because there's a lot of insights to be gleaned from the data. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of hypotheses to test. So there, there's a real process of understanding the domain and mixing that with data and expertise. And is the expertise that you mix in, I would imagine that you have a couple of people on board that are just experts in human decision-making that know all the research literature and basically say, uh, yeah, you do this and follow this paper and use this quote. I mean, that would be ideal. Um, but of course, it's, you know, there's a big area, a big space. So we, we, it's a combination of things. Yes, we do. We have people internally who, you know, I consider sort of more behavioral cognitive scientists, um, more behavioral. Um, but then we will use a mix. So, for example, we're working with Department of Health, the longstanding project there. We work with the UCL professor, Robert West, who's an expert in, in uh, smoking cessation, which is the model that we built. So we will, you know, we'll look for outside expertise and domain yeah. where, where appropriate. Um, I, I saw one really great quote on your website um, and, and that gives a really, really good question. So on your website, you say, even the largest behavioral data set, such as loyalty cards or credit card data, they can only ever provide a partial view of population behavior and they're limited to showing what happened in the past but it doesn't show you why it happened. It doesn't show you what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. So how do you guys make that jump then? How do you explain from past data why it happened? Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a synthesis, isn't it? I mean, it's a combination of things. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, we're understanding more and more about the limits of data and the limits of big data um, in terms of its objectivity and its partiality. Um, so it, I think it's a combination of things. Um, it's a combination of, building on top of people's expertise, you know, domain experts in their experience. Um, and so bringing in theory, bringing in theory and understanding from other, um, from other people in other areas and combining that. So it's a, it's a real combination. Someone once said to me that a, what ABMs do and what they're powerful is data fusion. Mm -hmm. There's the idea of bringing together through that process of trying to build a sort of holistic picture of what's going on in the system. 
you know, you, to some extent, you learn more about what you don't know than what you yeah. do know. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, I, I believe that the best models we've built, it's an iterative process. So through a number of projects, um, you know, when you arrive at a first, when we do first project, it's more of a feasibility than, you know, we're not necessarily going to cover everything and understand everything, but it will direct us in where we want to go. And it has to be a combination of data and theory. And that's, you know, that's, that's because, you know, we're trying to inform people. We're trying to provide an additional powerful, strong signal for them to use in their decision-making. And in that case, we believe it's important that people understand why, where these decisions are coming from yeah. and, and you're helping them solve a problem. You know, you're not telling them this is what's going to happen, but we're trying to say, this is the system. These are the dynamics. This is what's going on. Um, you know, and, and you, Somebody said they need to understand what's going on in order to, to really use it in their decision making. Could you maybe um, share with us a good client example? You, can, you don't need to mention any names, but how does a good project actually work? And what, what are the deliverables and how is it used for understanding the decisions? Yeah, so I would say, you know, we, we run projects maybe three months, six months. Um, we're quite quick in turning things around. Um, so we'll, the deliverables will be along the routes of, you know, we'll be setting up, so we'll be finding out what are questions of interest to clients, um, looking at what sort of data they have, uh, sort of time horizons. Can we, can we try to make it specific? What would be a, a typical okay. client problem? A typical client problem, okay. Um, okay, well, okay, so I can use the... the uh, Department of Health one. So in this case, they're interested in the UK population smoking behavior. Um, so, so we've built a model that represents uh, the UK population and, and sort of routes to quit. So how people quit. Um, and then we've got certain events during the calendar year. So in the UK, they have a thing called Stoptober, where the government puts in, you know, and advertises um, trying to get sort of build a collective sort of movement around trying to quit. So one of the questions there is, if we invest X amount, what sort of return, what sort of, how many people will try and quit effectively? Interesting, yeah. So this is an ongoing project. Um, so we, we recalibrate the model periodically. We, we include data from various sources. Um, and we will then run out simulations to say what, what, what could happen. You know, how, mm -hmm. how, you know, what kind of return of investment effectively will they get for the advertising spend? Um, and when you say route to exit, there are like a couple of ways that people typically... There are a number of ways. Yeah, there's, right. there's a number of routes, but each has a different cost. Um, you know, cold turkey being the worst um, for, for effectiveness. Um, okay. But then a, a broad spectrum down to, you know, individual NHS help. Um, and of course, that model is now being evolved to include things like the... Um, oh, uh, sorry, I forgot the name. The... Um, the vapes, the vapes. So there's, there's, you know, around vaping. Okay. And people moving from cigarettes to vaping. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so there's a number of additional elements that have been kind of being added in. Um, but that's an ongoing thing. So that's a sort of more ongoing engagement um, where we can recalibrate the model and then give new, you know, new projections. And you basically build the model. You build the the processes of uh, yeah. the ways of quitting into the model, and then you say you calibrate it against real data to to set those parameters correctly. Yes, I yes, exactly. So make the population representative. So we'll build populations and then make them statistically, you know, they'll be statistically represented. The outputs will be. So we can make that represent the whole population and we'll calibrate that against, yeah, against survey data um, where people are discussing the routes and the successes. 
And what level of detail are we talking here? So every individual person is one agent? Is that how it works? But in the model itself, it, uh, no, it'll be represented because it's based on survey data. Um, so we won't, in that case, I think we won't, we won't need to simulate at that level. We'll be able to do it at, yeah, a more arena representative, have a smaller population and then scale it up. Yeah. And is it then every, every agent representing a couple of people basically acting on external in influences? There's yes. a campaign and then there's a certain chance that I quit or not quit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there's a distribution over choice and then, yeah. And then we see what happens. So we're able to run that many times and, and see how it plays out. Now, how do you sell that to the departmental health in this case or to the clients in general? Because I could imagine if you explain this to them, this is what we want to do. This is how it's going to work. The, um, they're basically going to say, well, that's that's trivial you know why would you why would you, we need a simulation for that why do we need to give you money so how do you generally pitch this stuff how do we pitch it well i, I guess there's you know i think first of all it's a question of also what do people do now um you know and if people are not using any data um and it's really based on their intuition experience which of course is valuable um i think there's a tendency to sort of denigrate human expertise these days but Of course, it's valuable, but the, it's, it's the inclusion of multiple data sets. I mean, I, I mean, we can say that, you know, we build up a better picture, better picture of what's going on. Um, and we, mm -hmm. can, we can help you understand that. And through analysis of data and data sets and even influencing you know, the feedback loop is designing better data collection um, and looking at, you know, really, it's, it's an understanding piece. Yeah. We can help you understand better um, uh, what's going on and, and in, a, in a complex, dynamic world. I like what you said earlier that it also like building an agent based model is an exercise of understanding what you don't know that that is very much true in my experience as well and and valuable to the client yes but it's hard to sell you can't really say you should give me money to learn more about all the stuff you don't know <laughs> but it's yes it's, it's super valuable when you start building a system you you start to ask questions that nobody ever thought about right yes yes i mean i think there's there's also you know, in terms of the data side, you know, you inter we interrogate data differently because our end goal is different. So, you know, if people have collected data about their customers and clients, you know, we interrogate it, we look for internal consistencies that, that people don't look for. Mm -hmm. um, and through that analysis, there is a lot of value, you know, both in terms of what they're learning, what they're gleaning from it, the insights, um, And then also, you know, being able to reflect that back and, and maybe update. So we, we've had that. We've had that a number of times where, you know, a survey, uh, they change the questions or they add additional questions. You know, mm -hmm. so there's, um, it's, it's a sort of, I think the value of it, again, it depends where people start from. You know, I mean, I'm sure you have the same thing. There's a broad spectrum. Some clients are much more technical, some are less. Um, so there's, there's a different you know, you're, you're, you're yeah, effectively pitching it, you'd be pitching it slightly differently there. Um, but there's, there's a lot of value in the process of trying to understand. So it's not, yes, I mean, I say you learn what you don't know. And there is, you know, there's a lot of, there is some of that. Um, but there's, there's a lot of value in just that data analysis and that theory building. And, and would you say that you look at data differently than traditional data scientists because you look for causation, you look for consistency, as you said? I, th I think, yes, I, I think that's true um, because we're interested in, in trying to illuminate on causes. Um, you know, I think, I think that is the case. But I, I think it's more than that. I think ABM, 
I think one of the things that APM do, does is, is force you to think holistically about the system. So, you know, trying to bring a whole picture together. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, the environment, the individuals, you know, the different signals, the different factors, um, and then trying to, to simulate from those processes. Yeah. I'm interested with, with Sandtable. So you work for different clients. Um, and in our last talk, you also shared that you basically uh, build up like a, a core tech stack and whenever you develop something new for a client, you pull that in. But what's the, like the underlying vision of Sandtable? Do you guys want to build the perfect human decision-making model that's super generic and can be applied to anything? Or where do you guys want to go? Um, I think, well, the, the vision is, you know, to build great decision support systems. Um, I mean, it really is about, we believe this approach brings something new, you know, and in, we do think, I think it's difficult to build that general model. I mean, it's not, you know, I think that's, that's, a, that's a big ask, that's a big challenge. Um, but I think, you know, the world changes fast, human behavior changes. Um, so I think it's, it's more of a question of, of finding good sets of heuristics, um, good underlying patterns, adapting those. Um, and I think, you know, we, as I say, have it, you know, people, some people say, oh, you know, we're not that habitual, but of course some people are, some people aren't, but a big part of what we do is habitual. So there are underlying principles there that you can use. Um, but I think it's more what we, what we have developed through this is a more kind of agile way to build these models. So I think that helps us adapt quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's, you know, we are building a sort of full, a single stack that we can very quickly adapt and change as we need. Uh, and that's actually very powerful. Um, that's probably a, a nice segue into your, uh, into your baby, because you're the CTO, so you're responsible for the tech stack. So what is, like, what's the, the secret ingredients, the secret source of Sandtable? What, what are the juicy bits that you yeah. share with people? Um, well, I, th I think there is something in this approach to modeling. Um, you know, I think when I, when I joined Sandtable, um, you know, I, should say, I mean, for example, the, the first models that we built for Sandtable were in NetLogo. Um, mm -hmm. My boss did his first, you know, Andrew Skates that, you know, built the first models using NetLogo. Um, and then we moved on from there and there was a sort of question of, oh, we need performance, we need performance. So they were built in Repast, HPC, you know, C++, highly performant models. But as, as we started to realize and, you know, getting more data from clients and thinking about how do we incorporate this data, how do we answer more interesting questions, it became clear that this wasn't the right way for us because the, the models were being written in highly performant C++, but the models were being prototyped in Python. Um, and what we had then is creating these sort of barriers that made it very difficult to develop models quickly. Because you couldn't translate your Python code to C++ then, okay. Yes, oh, they were, they were different people writing, yeah. writing the, the code because these are diff very different skills. Um, so I think it was the realization that we needed to bring, I think, more, at least to our process, more of an agile way of modeling. Um, and, you know, the best way, you know, ultimately, um, we're building software, so we should be using the best software, you know, best practices from software, software mm -hmm. and what's been learned. So my, you know, I say my mission has been to, to bring that across, to kind of say, how do we build models in a more of an agile way? Um, you know, using the best practices, things like testing, code reviews, um, and thinking about modeling in a more incremental, iterative way. Mm -hmm. 
it's not always easy. Um, but that's also about uh, barriers. So how do we quickly build models? Well, Python is an amazing language for that. Um, it's become the de facto standard in data science. You know, it's got a massive ecosystem, big community, and just you know that every tool you can you can think of. Um, and if it hasn't been written already, it will be written in Python. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a very strong community, and it and it means. You know, I used to program in Java, in C, um, and other things. But once you go to Python, that how smooth and quick it is to try out ideas, um, and then with the broader ecosystem, means that you can, you know, build models quicker and more effectively. And I think, you know, as I say, the the, the real goal for me would be that you could build models as quickly as you could think of them. <laughs> That's a nice vision. I like that. <laughs> um, because it is about trying ideas and about validating them. And we have this confluence of data and theory and you know, we, we're building up tools around how do we effectively design and deploy the pipe, data pipelines because that's a big part of now also what we do. Um, so, so yeah, it's about agile and, and also scalable. So you know, being able to build models in agile way and being able to scale up when you need to. Um, to, to make sure that you can understand the, the models you're building through parameter sweep sensitivity analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, further, being able to do sort of calibration. Um, and the code base that you're currently using, does it use any uh, Python simulation libraries out there or is all the simulation source your own? It is all of our own, yes. Okay. We, um, I think, well, we've, yeah. It's we've written it. We've written it from written it from scratch. Um, did you did you look at any of the packages and then decide against them, or how did it go? I, I think what we found is that the uh, we have we have. I mean, we we you know we've looked at um, yeah we've looked at a fair you know the open source ones. I mean, we're I should say our, our philosophy is very much in open source. Um, so we you know we don't uh, we're built on on in the cloud systems, but we we use only other effectively only open source software. So, so within that space, we've looked at, you know, the different uh, options. Um, but I think what we found is that, um, in effect, the simulation architecture that we have is quite simple. Um, and we didn't sort of need a lot of the bells and whistles. Um, okay, yeah. So um, tell, tell us about that, that structure, because in the mm -hmm. chat we had last time, um, what I learned was that you use quite a different approach to agent-based modeling. So I'm typically associate agent-based modeling with object-oriented structures. Um, so I create an agent, that agent is its own object, it can communicate with another agent using message passing, and I can use all the advantages of object-oriented programming. But also I, I'm stuck with the disadvantages which is typically performance. So if I want to have 10 million agents, it's easy to make your machine smoke. So what do you guys do? How's it different? Yeah, so, I mean, of course we started there, um, object-oriented, and I mean, I would say that the, yeah, the C++ stuff was, was very fast. Um, the, the, the issue we had was, was, you know, as they say in, in sort of, the, the models were fast, but the team was slow. So that was the first thing. So, you know, C++ and Java, there's some, quite a lot of overhead to developing this software. Um, as a small team, trying to iterate quickly, you want to be more and more agile. And languages, dynamic, kind of interpreted languages like Python have that big advantage. 
Um, yeah, so the approach to modeling yeah, has, has evolved and continues to evolve, um, and I fully expect it to. So that's something else that we kind of embrace, you know, continue to improve that. I'd say it's, it's a product. So the, the approach that we use is a product of a lot about the data that's being incorporated. So one of the, the, the big inefficiencies with, um, with the object oriented is how do you store all this data about the environment and agents? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where we've adopted a sort of, I'd say a more data centric approach, which is really around kind of multi-dimensional arrays. And this, so storing data in arrays rather than having the separate objects across. Um, and this, this also, this is because it's, there are powerful tools in Python like NumPy that allow you to do very efficient vectorized computation across those arrays. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's one, of, one of the reasons is the performance side that gives us being able to represent that data efficiently. Um, but the other side of it is it allows us to structure it more declaratively. So this means um, a lot of, well, I've heard one of the criticisms of ABMs is that there's a lot of nested ifs. Mm -hmm. um, and that becomes very complex to develop and debug um, in computer science, the term cyclomatic complexity. So how nested structures are becoming. It's difficult to test, it's difficult to understand. Um, and, and really, you know, harks back to some of the criticisms of ABM about that the code is the only real representation of what you've, you know, what you've implemented of the model. So I think the approach that we've taken, you know, it's, it's really a throng of multiple things, but it also means it's easier to read and debug. And if it's you're, not so if you're good with, with Python and understanding data structure. If you're good with Python and, and, and yes, and, and sort of NumPy um, code. But it, it's a little bit more intuitive, I think, when you read it. Um, and, and yeah. So how, how is it easier to debug though? I, I'm not sure I understand that. Let's, let's assume we have an, uh, an object-oriented agent-based model and exactly the same model in your, in your sample yeah. framework. How would it be easier to find out where the problem is? I think it's partly it's because it's a more functional, so it's a little bit more imperative. So it's, we, you know, it's a lot more about operations on arrays and we structure that more within sort of functions. So it's sort of broken down a bit more into sort of functions. Um, so it, it maps closer to sort of mathematical representation. Yeah. Which I think, you know, if that is your, if you're good at that, then it's, then it's easier to understand what's going on. And some of this was about communication. So it's a bit easier to structure it, which means it's, it's easier to share it with someone else or for someone else to pick it up, which is important for us because models are built collaboratively somewhat, but of course also people leave the company and then we have to figure out stuff. Um, I'm still struggling to understand how you actually do it. You mentioned last time, it's essentially, it's all matrices. Uh, one individual agent you can think of as a column in, in, the, uh, in the matrix. Um, but what if your client says, oh, there's actually a, another way that people can quit smoking. Can you put that into the model as well? How do you practically do that? Yeah, so I mean, I'd say it's not, it's not like it's one big matrix. There, there'll be a number of different matrices that are their input. So that's the sort of pipeline structure. So there'll be different data sets, you know, different pipelines will have that will then run and apply logic. So whether it's filtering, aggregation, and will generate then a number of matrices that are then input. Mm -hmm. And those will represent different aspects of the problem. So it might be you have an agent's response to some sort of input, you know, an advertising signal. That'll right. be in one matrix. Then another matrix will represent something else. And then it's through a classic kind of discrete time simulation architecture. Um, but then you're able to manipulate that, you know, in stepwise um, and do, do your tick loop. Mm -hmm. So it's 
you basically on every time step or whenever something happens, you rerun all the matrix calculations and update all the parameters and all that. You'll do some updates. Yeah, do some updates. It will depend. So the logic, the logic of how those things happen, of course, is the, yeah, is the model itself, the model, the decision logic. And um, how, how's that different? To me, that sounds a little bit like a, a sophisticated system dynamics model. I'm not sure if, you, if you're familiar with system dynamics, but that's essentially uh, a system of uh, nonlinear equations that are solved every time step. Yeah, it's probably quite similar. Because if you, like at Sandtable, you typically uh, have millions of agents, right, in your models? Or well, the, of the, it, it will depend. So we will, we don't tend to have that large simulations because they'll be statistically representative. So we'll be able to run smaller populations and then scale up. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, it could be quite, I'm not that familiar with system dynamics. Um, so I, I wouldn't be able to say, but, but it sounds like it could be, yeah. So with, with system dynamics, what you can do, um, let's say you have a very simple agent-based model of a million customers making the decision to buy an iPhone or not. And that depends on some advertising. Uh, you can either like explicitly model that as an agent-based model and have each one of those 1 million people with their decision, buying or not yeah. buying. Um, or you put it into a system dynamics model where you do not have individual agents anymore. Uh, you can think of it like a liquid of 1 million water yes. particles. Yeah, yeah. And you, you pour one liquid into another glass and the other glass represents the people that made the buying decision. So it's very, very smooth. It's quite fast, but yeah. you lose the individuality which is probably what you do not have. You still have your individual agents. We, we definitely still have the individuals. Um, yeah. It's just that they're you know, represented slightly differently. Um, and if they're not, you know, there isn't one object representing one agent, it'll be across, it'll be represented by its kind of location in the space, the matrices. Um, so definitely discrete and it's definitely individuals. This, this sounds very new to me. I've never heard about modeling agents like that in a non-object oriented way. Uh, are you guys unique in that space or have you come across other people that are doing the same thing? I, I believe we're unique. Um, not really seeing other examples of this. Um, That's pretty cool. So maybe you are the founders of a new agent-based modeling branch. Perhaps. I mean, I think, yeah, I, I think this, this does tie, you know, because of the sort of amount of data that we're, that we try to incorporate. Um, I think that it sort of stems from that, that need. Um, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not really familiar with other cases. So let's go uh, into the second step of the, the, the technical aspect. So we now understand roughly how you build your models, but it's also all about scalability, you said, and running it in the cloud and probably running it millions of times. So how do you guys manage that part of the process? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's a similar philosophy, really. It's, it's how do we quickly, you know, have to make it agile so so we have to make it you know so that it's easy for the guys to iterate and increment and fit within that process of modeling so we try to make it very simple to use a lot of cloud resources um, on demand so as required so projects have different phases um, you know building them doing the data analysis building models you know maybe exploring them to some extent parameter sweeps and then doing calibrations later and then perhaps deploying them for for usage um, so we've, we've tried to build up a, a, a cluster, a framework that can be used to, to build up, if you like, these kind of larger scale computations. So, you know, we see sensitivity analysis or so parameter sweep is a computation that we want to do. 
Um, and we're able by providing kind of certain primitives, essentially in a library that the, that the modelers can use, uh, they can build up these large computations, they can run them locally, but then they can also be distributed, they can be sent out to cloud resources um, to run across lots of, lots of machines. Okay, and when you say run them locally, does that mean you have a big server in the cellar? No, I mean run on, on, their, on their local, on their laptop. Okay. So, so the idea being that, you know, again, it sort of stems from a sort of software development that, you know, you, you should, you need, you know, your local laptop is a place where you can develop things, test them, your kind of own workspace um, before you do anything, anything else where you push something, you know, push, push something for, for a production server. Um, so you're able to test something, obviously a smaller scale. Um, test things locally, and then you're able to kind of send these computations off and have them distributed across a lot of cloud resources. So in that respect, it's similar to Spark, mm -hmm. to a Spark or a TensorFlow, uh, or any of these kind of cluster frameworks. Um, but we're making it, it's custom, we're building it around particular ABM workflows. So the idea is that it provides certain primitives um, that you need to do calibration or sensitivity analysis um, and then exploration. And what if a client comes to you and says, yeah, we really want the model, but our data is super sensitive. You can't have it. You know, these typical consulting pains that you have, how do you handle those? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's a pretty hard constraint. Um, I mean, we, I think we haven't, I'm not sure we've had that case much or that, I, that I know about. Um, so of course, security and data security is, is very important to us. Um, And we will, you know, we use, yeah, we'll, we'll you know, I, I believe that the security of our cloud provider is very high. Um, we isolate it so people work on different projects and different clusters and that kind of thing. Okay. Um, but I think but there's, there's you been... You are able to handle it, essentially. We're able to handle yes. it, yes. Okay. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think we are seeing a bit of a change in the last five years with, with respect to data and cloud. Uh, at the moment, we, you know, we do... I mean, we're, we're looking to kind of offer this technology out um, to allow other people to use it. And at the moment, we're offering it as a kind of um, managed service. So we, we run it. Um, but I'm aware that certain people may have certain sensitivities around that. So we may look at other models you know, later on. Yeah. Uh, tell us more about that. That's the, the Send Table Beta. Yeah, so so it's called Sandman. Yeah. Um, so what we you know, we've we've been building up this this stack and, and particularly you know and using it, we've iterated on it a number of times internally, um, and we've we've got to a point where we, you know, we think other people could use it too. So that there is you know we've sort of we're we're sort of putting it out there to see um, whether there's other people interested to try it and use it. Um, we're getting we're in closed beta, so we're, we're asking people who who think who may find it useful to come and try it and give us feedback. Um, and we've had some, you know, we're getting some good reception from people in some more academic communities. Um, and um, so the other thing, well, the other important aspect of it, again, kind of come back to the philosophy of sort of continually improving and, and the modeling, uh, the modeling approach evolving, that we're able to run different types of models. So we're You know, we're able to run a NetLogo model. We're, we're able to run a, a Python-based model. We're, we're able to run different kind of models. Um, so in that respect, you could see Sandman as providing a number of services that will help you build models mm -hmm. better, better and faster. Um, so yeah, so we're, we're offering that up um, to people to come, come and try it. Cool. Um, that actually led to another question I had um, earlier, back to your actual client work. How do you 
deliver your models? Is it simply insights, PowerPoint slides, or can people actually start playing with the models themselves? Yeah, so it's so that again, there's, as I said earlier, it, it, there's a spectrum, you know, and it really it depends on on kind of where clients are at. So on the one hand, delivering insights in a presentation, um, um, and then the other end is actually deploying models for usage. Um, so some clients who may have already built ABMs and rebuilding, or you know, have the infrastructure, have the applications already, we we deploy models that can then be through APIs can then be interacted with and run. Cool. I mean, what we do, yeah, so that, that's, and that's something we'd like to see more of. Um, and we think is a, you know, it's a powerful way to, to go. And how do you convince your clients that the validation is, is solid and they can trust the results? Oh, that's a, that's a very good question. I mean, that's, that's a sort of journey that we go on. Um, and sort of, yeah, I mean, again, it will depend a lot on the project. So, you know, you know, how much data, how much expertise, um, how many iterations it's been through. I, mean, I can imagine that it's, it's much, much harder than a traditional process simulation world where essentially you can look at the results. You can even look at the warehouse and how the machines work. And you can say, you know, it works like in reality, look at it. And that yeah. often gives a lot of trust. But you don't have that luxury because you, you simulate thousands, millions of people and their decisions. So it must be much, much harder. Yeah, so it, it will, you know, building confidence in models is, is a difficult thing. Um, it will involve, you know, you know the data, um, looking at models, you know, fitted, sort of fitting models, you know, the calibration process is very important, um, validating it, looking at various different dynamics. Um, I mean, it is, it is a difficult thing to do. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, you know, and, and I'd say that, you know, it's, that's where a number, sometimes it can take a number of iterations before we're really, you know, we're more confident in these models. And I think it also comes back to what the alternative is, you know, if people are, again, what, what other tools they're using. Um, and of course, comparing with other, with other methods is also something. That we, yeah, you've mentioned that before, that what is the alternative? That's something that um, one of our previous interviews with Stefan Bainson, he was also, he's like a simulation expert, and he was saying the same. Very often there's criticism of the model, and when he raises the point to, well, what is your alternative? What do you currently do? That's, that's typically a good insight. Like, yeah, good point. <laughs> yes. Um, um, do, sorry, do, do you guys, as part of the validation and convincing your clients, do you build the model agile together with them? Like keep them involved in the loop, all that? If possible, yes. I mean, that is, you know, we, we yeah. So that there's, there's, there's definitely, if, if, if it, if the, to characterize it, if it's, you know, in software, the waterfall being the kind of alternative or the, the sort of more traditional project planning, if it's that versus agile, we're definitely more on the agile end. So, um, you know, getting people in, yes, it, they're definitely, I mean, we, you know, modeling is a journey of understanding um, and building. Um, it's also about the relationship. So it's, it's definitely, yeah, it's, I'd say the deeper the engagement, the better. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, Maybe slowly drawing to a close, I'm interested in the future of Sandtable and you personally. Where do you guys want to go? Um, I think in, in our last call, you said this cool sentence, you want Sandman and Sandtable to basically build the TensorFlow of agent-based modeling, right? So what exactly does that mean? What is that vision? Yeah, so, so the vision, I mean, the vision for Sandtable is to continue to 
you know, build build agent based models and help people kind of solve their problems, uh, business problems. I mean, it's uh, through understanding behavior and through using these powerful tools. Um, and I think you know the the Sandman, the technology, um, the idea is that more people can be doing this. Um, and I think that we are starting. Um, we have been building up a, a very interesting technology stack that can that can help people do this. Um, you know, involving more data, involving stronger models. Um, so I say TensorFlow because it's uh, you know it, it's that powerful framework for the training and, and uh, of, of kind of machine learning models. It's got a lot of aspects to it, but it's a very powerful that's come through you know powerful toolkit. But it's come through a lot of learning, a lot of usage, um, and understanding of the real real problems around training kind of large scale machine learning models. And I'd like, you know, I want Sandman to, to, to take, to do the same thing for ABM. I think there's, there's a space for something that's, you know, can do the large scale, um, the large scale um, development and deployment of agent-based models. Do you, do you guys also think about how could we use our uh, expertise and our tech step for other things? Because um, two ideas I, I'm having is this would probably be interesting for animal research as well, because animals make decisions and researchers model yes. animals. Yes. Um, and the, the other idea would be uh, with all the current AI um, angst around, you know, how do, how do AI models actually make decisions and how is it going to impact our world in 20 years and everybody going to lose their jobs? That might be something as well that your agents become actual AI models. Yeah. So I'm, I mean, I guess you know, on 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 some level, where uh, well, in, in terms of the, the the technology itself, so the models themselves are black boxes um, from the technology side. So you know, whether it's a NetLogo model or a Python model, to some extent, doesn't matter to. Uh, to the technology stack itself. So from that perspective, the kind of services and framework um, that we're building can be used for other purposes as well. So perhaps more general computational models that have the sort of requirements that agent-based models have and the ones that we've been building. Um, but of course, the modeling approach, I think, yes, there, there's probably value more, more generally. Of course, ABMs can be used in, you know, in, other, in other areas. Um, um, I think the big thing is that, you know, the framework we're building it, it has certain the characteristics that are required for the workflows. So it's not going to go down the route of of being used for kind of MPI, you know, very tightly coupled, distributed, or parallel computations. So there's certain characteristics around the ABMs that we build, um, and I think other people are building. Um, but I think you know, again, it's we're trying to make it a smooth and agile experience for people to be able to build these things effectively, and that's that's one of the things TensorFlow offers, and what we're trying to do is that single stack recognizing that it needs to be very simple, very low barrier for people to iterate quickly and build better models fast. Yeah. Um, so that can be applied, I'm sure, more generally. Very oh, cool. How do, you, how do you guys see the simulation industry in general? You mentioned at the start, uh, I think before we even started recording that, oh yeah, actually we are part of the simulation industry because you build a simulation tool. Um, mm -hmm. how, how do you guys think about that? Or are you more in the world of data science? Yeah, so I'd say our, our experience is um, closer to data science. So, so we hire data scientists. You know, we, we, we speak at data science conferences. Um, we're involved with the PyData community in London. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, 
Yes, I suppose so because of the history um, and the sort of timing, um, we're sort of more in data science. But you know, I'm, I'm starting, you know, and, and perhaps reflection of today that to reach out to more people in the simulation um, kind of industry. I think, you know, we, we've yet to see. You know, I believe that there can be a revolution. Um, you know, more people should be doing this, um, of course. And I think it's still yet to really make it. Um, yeah. Of course, it has in some sectors, um, but I think it's there's still some yeah there's some way to go. And I think that you know the question I ask is how much of that is tools, how much of that is education, how much of that is um, processes, methodologies. Um, but I think we've got, we're at an interesting, there's an interesting trifecta, you know, we say that part of the reason that we, you know, that we're, we think is a good time to be doing this now is that combination of data, the more data is available, the computation, kind of commoditized computation, um, computation resources through cloud, and then also behavioral theory. Um, and understanding more, you know, you mentioned nudge, um, and this, this, this deeper understanding, but also the wider, you know, the wider interest. In, in, in new ways of, of doing things. Um, so when you guys are, are more home in the data science community and talk at data science conferences, how do they um, react? Yeah, so there's, um, you know, rightly so, there's, there's some <laughs> skepticism. Um, I mean, I think sometimes, um, of course, the, the sort of obsession with completely data-driven and um, you know, that's, that's how things should be done. Um, so there, there is often some skepticism. I think sometimes it's seen as a little bit um, antiquated almost, that we're trying to build kind of theory-driven models yeah. um, and sort of more structural models, theory-driven understanding. Um, whereas, you know, the, the, of course, the trend and the sort of big data is that, you know, there's no theory needed because it's all in the data. But I think as we as we understand more and more that is that is not the case. And I think that the path through is really, you know, using the best of both, using the best of both worlds. When do you think the pendulum is going to swing back and people are going to realize uh, it's not all in the data? <laughs> well, I feel we're, you know, we're in, I mean, uh, it's not my, my expertise to call it really, but uh, in somewhat trough disillusionment, um, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think, it's partly my background because I came through more symbolic and knowledge-based AI um, and watched the kind of scrubs, you know, the statistical AI, of course, having booming. Um, I think, I, again, I think I think it will be yeah, it will be that combination. Uh, that combination will come through, and I, I think we're we're starting to see a bit of it. We're starting to see a bit of it, and I think it's you know it's been sort of blinding. You know, we've gone into it, and people are able to. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea that it's objective with data and it's just more collect more and more and that's it. I mean, I think we're, we're starting to, yeah, we already see that that's not the, not the case. Yeah. I understand that more widely. Very interesting. Um, our final question typically is uh, the standard one. What kind of advice would you give young people starting out interested in doing simulation or data science driven simulation? And also, what kind of advice would you give your younger self maybe at the same time? Okay, that's a good, yeah, very good question. Um, well, I think, you know, getting, getting into data science, I think that there's a big split. So, so yeah, you might say, you know, we're, there was a good HBR article a while back about two kind of sides of data science, sort of more 
human, let's say, and understanding, and then a more sort of predictive side. Um, I think, you know, getting exposure across the board, of course, more experience. Um, I think that that's, that's a good thing. I think looking for, um, so getting experience widely, you know, there are lots of people doing interesting things, you know, maybe don't get too pulled into to the hype, you know, neural nets, deep learning, um, but also to understand that a lot of, a lot of this work does come back to simpler methods and not to forget that you're trying to solve problems and not being caught up in too many shiny new tools. Um, so yeah, I think, I think finding interest in domains and, and is, is also really interesting and important, important thing. So getting dragged in because someone's using a cool tool will get you so far, but having a real passion for a domain is, you know, and, and, and kind of a purpose of goal, I think is really important. Um, I think advi advice for myself, I'm not sure. I mean, I think, you know, I decided to go back and do a PhD because I thought that would open more doors. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, that was, that was definitely the case. So I think follow, you know, there's lots of opportunities, look out for interesting things. It sounds like you're quite happy where you are. And, and the I think I am. That's I good. think I am. <laughs> yes. That's good. That's how it should be. Great. Well, Thomas, thank you so much. That was super, super interesting. I hope um, our listeners also learned about this new way of doing agent-based modeling, which, which I found, found super, super fascinating. Uh, we'll see where it goes. I hope it, it becomes mainstream because it, it seems to be very, very promising. Uh, how can people reach you and reach out to you and reach out to Sandtable? Um, yeah, so, you know, sandtable.com is our website and sandman.ai is a website where you can find out more about the, uh, the, the platform, the technology platform. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter, TR, TR French, at TR French. TR French, great. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Cheers.